All right, good morning. How are y'all? I was, uh, I was uh, noticing today, I just thought about it as I came in here. I've been in this room all the time. We have our fellowship group that meets here every Wednesday night in this very room. And it's, it's beautiful to see the clock actually is on time today. Um, but, but we're always here every week, and I just realized I've actually never been in high school ministry before. Um, since we've been here, I did, I did one time show up and guest uh, speak in middle school, but I've never been to high school ministry. So it's, it's a joy to be here with you all this morning. It looks like it's a, it's a fun group. So I'm thankful to be here with you all this morning. And I've been asked to look at King Saul. So that's uh, going to be our topic today, King Saul. And, uh, you know, it's a lot to do in one session to cover the life of somebody. So it's, it's really going to be kind of like looking at highlights or actually lowlights of King Saul and his life, not going through like a detailed, in-depth look at all, th- all through his life. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of scripture uh, to do that. So it's really going to be looking at, uh, it's called the, uh, the, the ensnared king. It's going to be looking at the downfall of Saul in particular. But how does it relate to you? I mean, that's one of the things. How do, how, what does this have anything to do with you as, as youth here today? Uh, what does Saul have to do with, with you? How can Saul be helpful? And I think what it really is helpful to look at is why King Saul fell. And what you're going to see is that when he fell, it had to do with the fact that he really, really cared about what people thought. That was his weak spot. He really cared about what people thought. And as young people in today's world, certainly there's all kinds of pressures and influences and temptations for you to care a whole lot about what everybody else thinks. Sometimes to some level that's a good thing, but sometimes it can be something that we care too much about. Uh, In today's culture, we, we always seem to be wanting to know what everybody else is thinking. We want to know what's popular, right? We and we allow what others think to affect what we buy or what we wear or what we watch. And we have, we have people whose whole careers are being influencers on social media. That's, like, that's what they do for a living, for money. They influence on social media. And what that means is their opinions influence what other people think. Right? That's their job. So if you watch influencers and you care, then what you're doing is what you're thinking is affected by what they think. So you care about what they think if you follow influencers. And some of these people have thousands or millions of followers who obviously care very much what these influencers think. And it's gotten to the point that many in our culture actually now would say that what is true or what is right is determined by the majority. In other words, by whatever is popular, right? What's most popular. Now, it's natural to care what others think. And I'd say, to some extent, it's actually loving. The Bible says in Philippians 2, 3, and 4 that we should do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So we can apply this to other people around us and to our friends and and anyone we're encountering, that, that we should care about them. We should care about their interests. We should care what's good for them. And we might and we should we should therefore even care what they think to some extent, right? We should care what our family thinks. We should care what our fellow students or teachers or bosses think. But there's a point at which we can care too much about what people think. Right? At what point do you think it becomes too much? Give me an answer. Yeah, I'm not rhetorical here. Actually, give me, when do you think? When do you think that's going to become too important? At what point is caring what other people think too important? Yeah. When all you do is obsess over what people think. 
Okay, so that's like ruling your life, right? Okay, good answer. Any other thoughts on that? Yeah. You hear that? When you're willing to listen to them rather than God. And all you want to do is please man. Well, I think what you're going to see this morning is those three things could pretty well describe King Saul. And that's why he fell, right? Because he, he, that's exactly what his thinking was. He was willing to disobey God because he cared so much about what other people thought. Okay? And that's the thing we have to watch out for. So, the, so it's, it's not that we don't care what people think, but we have to know what's the right place for that, right? And it's going to depend on who the people are as well. But ultimately, what matters is what God thinks, right? And we care what people think as far as, as we can, and, we, and we, can, uh, you know, we can listen, especially, you know, we talk about parents, right? We care what our parents think. We've been learning about honoring and obeying parents, but there is a limit to that even, right? As long as your parents aren't calling you to do something against God, right? So even with parents, there's a limit to how far you're going to go in, in uh, listening to someone's opinion. All right, uh, so that, that's good. So you've given good answers. Let's take a look. Um, then a little bit further into Saul here. So, so you've said it becomes a problem when we're concerned more with what people think than doing what is right. Or we could say when we want man's approval more than we want God's approval. Right? That's when it becomes a problem. Another way we could say that is if people's approval becomes an idol for us. Right? An idol, I mean, we just read from Daniel 3. We have this, this idol for, for Nebuchadnezzar, it said 60 cubits. I don't know if you know what a cubit is. A cubit's about a foot and a half. So this thing was about 90 feet tall. That's a lot of times what we think of as an idol, right? Some big golden object that people are bowing down to. But an idol isn't necessarily just a thing, right? An idol can be something that's, that, that isn't an isn't a, a object. It isn't even necessarily a false god in the sense of a god that you're bowing down to. But an idol is just something that you put ahead of God. That could be anything. You could put anything ahead of God. And so, in this case, if you're putting the approval of man over God, then that's become an idol for you, right? So, what could this look like for you? Maybe within your circle of friends. Uh, let me just give you some examples. Small things, maybe, but, but on the other hand, they're big because it, it's, it has to do with doing what's right, listening to God. You know you shouldn't use a particular word, but your friends do, and they won't think you're cool if you don't use it. So, wanting to please them, you use the word. Okay, that would be an example, trying to please your friends, even though you know you shouldn't be doing that. Uh, you know you shouldn't be participating in what some people are doing, but you want to keep them liking you. So you go along with it, even though you don't think you should. You know you shouldn't say bad things about your parents, but your friends do about theirs, and you just want to fit in. So these would be some examples of, of letting the concern for what other people think influence you and how you think and what you do. We could call it peer pressure. That's another name for it, right? Fear of man, peer pressure people-pleasing, whatever you want to call it, it's very easy for us to allow a desire for approval to become an idol in our lives. And if you think about it, it's kind of a slavery. I can't do what I should do, or I can't do what maybe I want to do even, because I'm concerned about what they might think, whoever they are. Right? But that's controlling me. I'm really allowing that group of people to make decisions for me. Whichever way their approval goes, that's the way I'm going to go. So I'm really enslaving myself to people's opinions. This morning, we are going to look at Saul. He had this problem. He cared way too much about what people thought. He cared so much that he ignored God's word to cater to the people's approval. And he was, he was a king. So you'd think a king is someone who's really powerful. 
but he was enslaved by his desire for people's approval. He feared man rather than God, and this was his downfall. Now, if I were to ask you, who was King Saul, how would you answer that? Just blurt out an answer, a couple of people. What would you say if I just said, who's King Saul? First king of Israel. That's probably what most of us would say, right? The first king of Israel, and that's a good answer. But I always remember an outline of 1 Samuel that I read that calls him the first and failing king. 1 Samuel starts talking about Samuel, the last uh, judge, Samuel the prophet, and then the next part is about Saul, and it says the first and failing king. And that captures pretty well who he was. He was a failure as a king, as we're going to see this morning, and it's because he cared too much about what people thought rather than God. So he's a warning for us. He's a picture of what happens when we care too much about what people think. So let's take a look at Saul. Let's meet King Saul. And we're going to start with the rise of Saul. Okay, before we meet him, we want to get into who and what. Before we get into the who and what, we want to look at why. Why is King Saul? Why was he king? Why, why, you know, what, what was his whole thing? What did he come about for here? Well, if, to just give you the position in history where we are, this is shortly after the time of Judges. You'll remember in the book of Judges, the famous summary statement, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So what book comes after Judges? Ruth, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, and then, and then Kings, right? So Ruth is the same time as Judges. In fact, the very opening of Ruth tells you when it was in the time of Judges. So Ruth and Judges, and then you have Kings, and then in the middle, Samuel. So Samuel is where you're transitioning from Judges to Kings, right? It's a transition from the leadership of Israel from Judges to Kings. That's, a, that's what's going on there. Now, Samuel is a prophet. He's basically the last judge. If you want to turn with me in for, to 1 Samuel 8, we'll read a little bit about Samuel before uh, Saul. So Samuel, this is 1 Samuel chapter 8, at the opening of the chapter. And it's interesting because Pastor Chance mentioned Eli and his sons this morning. Samuel's sons weren't good either. Um, so we'll read about that here. 1 Samuel 8, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. So technically he wasn't the last judge. There were others there. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And then it says, um, but, hold on, I missed it there. They said, they said, appoint us a king like all the nations, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have rejected not you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. All right, so the situation is Sam, Samuel's old and his sons are, well, terrible people. And it's time for the system of judges to end. And the people are crying out. They want a monarchy. They want a king over them. And it, was, it wasn't sinful in itself to ask for a king. Them having a king isn't sinful. But what God says is that they were rejecting him as their king by demanding a human king be put over them. And more is said on this in Samuel's farewell 
If you page ahead a little bit to 1 Samuel 12, or I guess click ahead if you're on a phone, 1 Samuel 12, 11, Samuel's saying farewell here, and he says, it says, the Lord sent Jerubel and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel, these are judges, this is Samuel speaking, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, he's talking about Saul now, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. So the issue was that Israel wanted a king to judge them like all the nations. They wanted to be like the nations around them who all had kings. Even though they were God's special chosen people, among whom he dwelled, they wanted to be like the nations instead. Okay, the MacArthur Study Bible explains that up until this point, the Lord had fought the battles for Israel and given them victory. But Israel no longer wanted the Lord to be their warrior. Replacing him with a human king was their desire. It was in this way that Israel rejected the Lord. The problem was not in having a king, rather the reason the people wanted the king was so that they would be like other nations. They also foolishly assumed there would be some greater power in a king leading them in battle. And we know that in Deuteronomy 17, Moses had already anticipated Israel having a king. And in fact, God gave some rules for kings for the day when they had kings that was supposed to make even their kings not be like all the other kings. So even in Israel having a king, Israel's kings weren't supposed to be like all the kings of the other nations. But that's what the people were wanting. Uh, how were they not supposed to be like all the others? Well, they, weren't, they were supposed to, be, it was supposed to be someone from Israel. It was supposed to be uh, not have this great military might that they're counting on, not having multiple wives, not trusting in their wealth, all of these kinds of things. There was supposed to be a difference between Israel's king. Okay, so that's the why of King Saul. So he's a king because the people are demanding a king, and Samuel is old, and his sons are terrible. Second question, then, who is King Saul? So let's meet King Saul now. First Samuel 9, gotta go back a little. We jumped to the, we jumped to Samuel's farewell. Between that, he, Saul, Saul is actually introduced to us. First Samuel 9, 1 and 2. Anybody who'd be willing to read that for us? Just so I don't feel like I'm doing it all. Anybody wanna? Any volunteers? Yeah, just, you wanna read it nice and loud? The first two verses, sorry. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was King, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Zerath, son of Aphia, and a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And when he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man, there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than him. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. All right, thank you. So Saul, what could we say about him? He's from the tribe of Benjamin. He had a wealthy farmer of a dad. And he's apparently the tallest and the most handsome man in the land. Why do we care about this? Well, because it means that he would be popular. He would be popular among the people. Here's what they would think of as the perfect king. Here's a big, good-looking guy who all the men would want to be, and the women would think, oh, he's so handsome. If they had a football team in Israel, he'd be the star quarterback. That's who he was. And he seemed to be humble as well. When he first meets Samuel, Samuel's searching for, or sorry, Saul is searching for his dad's lost donkeys, if you remember the story. But God has already told Samuel to anoint Saul as king. And if we look at verse 20, 1 Samuel 9, 20, uh, Samuel says, 
As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, don't set your mind on them. Don't worry about them. They've been found. And for, for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? So he's saying basically, in, in, before Saul realizes what's going on, he's kind of like, all of Israel is going to be yours, is what he's kind of telling him. And then Saul answered, am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? Is, it not my, is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? So it's kind of a humble response. Where he's like, who do you think I am? I'm kind of nobody. I'm not real important. So, so he has kind of a humble reaction, which is good. He speaks lowly of himself and his tribe. <coughs> and then there's another incident in chapter 10, uh, verses 21 and 22, where um, Samuel actually, <clears throat> they cast lots for who's going to be the king. And as the lots, the lots start going narrower and narrower and narrowing it down to who's going to be the choice of king, and we all know it's going to be Saul because that's God's choice here, um, it, Saul actually hides, right? If you remember this story, 1 Samuel 10, 21, uh, Samuel brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot, and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot, but when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. So he went hiding uh, while they were trying to figure out who the king was. And a lot of people think this might have been a sign of modesty and humility on Saul's part. Uh, one commentator writes, he had, to, he had time to prepare himself for this moment, but seems not to have been able to see himself in the role of king, though he had now had the assurance of the prophetic anointing confirmed by the lot. Reluctantly, he revealed himself, but he did not want to be king. He wasn't ambitious. He wasn't seeking to be king. In fact, he was terrified of the responsibility. So this may be good. This may be another indication of humility. Although others have argued that it could be false modesty. I wonder if perhaps, given his character, that he was afraid of what the people might say or think. In any event, God would empower him to serve as king. He didn't have to be a mighty or wise or anything great on his own because God would enable him for that service. And after Samuel anoints him, uh, chapter 10, look at verse 9. says, when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs, the ones that Samuel had promised, came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. So we see the Spirit comes upon him, which the Holy Spirit would often do this in the Old Testament. He would come upon and enable people to serve God in a special way. Um, this wasn't for every believer. It was different than now, where the Holy Spirit comes and permanently lives inside every believer. But in the Old Testament, he would come upon people and empower them to serve, especially leaders uh, like kings. Uh, you may remember the guy, Bezalel, who designed the tabernacle. The Holy Spirit came upon him to enable him to do that, to his, do his artistry, to glorify the Lord. Um, so he was an, an example from there. And then, of course, it happened with kings, right? David and others. It even sometimes happened with unbelievers. Numbers 24.2 records that Balaam, the false prophet, the prophet for hire, Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God came upon him. So the Spirit even came upon Balaam um, at one point. So it also says here, not only did the Spirit come upon Saul, uh, upon Saul but that God gave him another heart, or some translations say changed his heart. Now, we often talk about a heart change as someone being saved, but I don't think that's what happened here. 
There was clearly some kind of change in his heart, but it doesn't necessarily mean he was regenerated. And based on his whole life, I don't think he was a true believer. Have you guys thought about that? Have you looked at Saul? I mean, he's kind of a tough one. We don't know for sure, but it doesn't really seem like when you go through his life that he was a believer. So I would lean toward that he wasn't. Nothing seems to show that he was. I mean, I suppose it's possible that he he, uh, repented at some point, but it's certainly not recorded in the scriptures. So I think he was just being empowered and strengthened and encouraged by the Lord. He wasn't saved at that point. That's not what that's saying. Okay, so Samuel gathers all the people together. They pronounce Saul as king. And then the story continues. Saul rallies the people together. Chapter 11, they defeat the Ammonites. And it's a pretty good start, but it's going to collapse very quickly. Um, So that's what we want to notice. Saul starts off well. He seems like he might be a good king. He's definitely what the people wanted. Tall, good-looking, seems like he's going to be a good leader. That's what they think. The problem is that's the outside, right? And we know about when God ends up choosing David to replace Saul, God says that he looks at the heart, right? He looks at the heart. And so the heart of Saul turns out to not be good. The heart of Saul is concerned with what people think more than God. So we turn now to the fall of Saul. And we're going to look briefly at three events in his life that are going to show you that he was way too concerned about what people thought. All three of these show that he was worried about what people thought, rather than God. So, So this is a warning to us as we look at his life. His downfall was fear of man or people pleasing. And as the scriptures say in Acts 5.29, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. But that was not Saul. He did not. He obeyed men rather than God. So let's start with first the disobedient sacrifice. We said Saul defeated the Ammonites in chapter 11. Israel's battling with the Philistines now. Saul's son Jonathan defeats a garrison of the Philistines. And then Saul is gathering troops at Gilgal to prepare for the response that's going to come back. So they've defeated some Philistines and they're expecting the Philistines to come back and hit hard. All these troops are coming and they're going to go to battle. And back in 1 Samuel 10.8, Samuel had told Saul to go ahead to Gilgal, and then he said, seven days you shall wait, this is verse 8, 1 Samuel 10, seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Okay, so he's supposed to go ahead, wait for Samuel to arrive. Anybody remember what happens? All right, well, this will be new to you then. 1 Samuel 13, verse 8. It doesn't go as, as expected. 1 Samuel 13, 8. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. Uh-oh. He didn't come. He wasn't there. Seven days had passed. And the people were scattering from him, from Saul. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. So what exactly happened here? First, Saul was told to wait for Samuel. Right? He was told that when Samuel arrived, Samuel would tell him from God what it was that he was supposed to do. 
So he was really supposed to await instruction from God. But he took it upon himself when Samuel didn't arrive within those seven days. He took it upon himself to make the offerings. He says he sought the favor of the Lord. You see, he was preparing to go to battle. And I guess in the positive, at least he realized that he wanted and needed the Lord's favor. But he took, his hands to, he took it into his hands to do this. And it wasn't specifically that he made a sacrifice, because sometimes kings did make offerings. The issue was that he did not wait for Samuel's assistance and instruction. He took the matter into his own hands and he did what he wanted, thinking or hoping that God would be okay with it. But Samuel was the prophet and he was bringing God's word to him, God's instruction. And he needed to wait for that and he didn't. Saul disobeyed. Why did he disobey? Well, let's look a little more carefully at what he says. What does he say in verse 11? When I saw that the people were scattering from me. And then he says, he also saw that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash. So picture this. They're ready to go to battle, right? They're there, and then here comes this big army of Philistines gathering to fight them. And they see all these Philistines, and the people are starting to get anxious. And some of them are starting to wander off and scatter instead of stay, sticking around for the battle, and Saul's starting to freak out. That's what's going on. He's freaking out that the people are going to scatter, they're going to leave, and there's going to be nobody there, or, or their army's going to be too small, and they're going to get crushed by the Philistines. So that's what he was afraid of. And you can see why he has some questions and some doubts. It's understandable, but it's not excusable. If you know what God has told you to do, you must do that no matter what. Right? We just heard the example from Daniel 3 of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. Right? They knew what God wanted them to do, and they were, they were going to die if necessary to do what God said. So we, we need to do what God says no matter what, no matter how confused we are or unsure or anxious. And even if we're going to suffer for it, we need to do what God commands. Okay, Peter and the apostles said we must obey God rather than men. They had, been, they had been ordered by the Jewish religious leaders not to teach about Jesus, but God had commanded them to spread the gospel. So they obeyed, even against the authorities. And what happened to them? They were beaten for it, right? They were beaten for it, but they, they rejoiced that they suffered for God's glory. You might face the same situation. Ridicule or threat for talking about Christ, or even maybe just for believing in Christ. Will you be courageous and obey God rather than men? But it's more than evangelism. This applies to any issue of obeying God. Are you prepared to obey God in all things, even if it's hard, even if there might be unpleasant consequences? Okay, go back to a few examples. How about, what if you and your friend accidentally break something at home, or, or at church, or at a store? Are you going to do what God wants? Are you going to be honest and take responsibility? Or are you going to listen to your friend and run away? Right? Are we going to do what's right? Or are we going to be afraid of what people are going to think and what might happen? Or maybe some friends of yours are gossiping about somebody. Are you going to say something? Are you going to you know, stand up for what's right? Or are you going to participate in it? Because you're afraid that your friends are going to be unhappy if you don't. Uh, I know I should go to my friend when he's offended with me. But I don't know. I don't want to make him upset. So then I'm not going to go to him when I know he's offended. Am I going to do that or am I going to do what's right? Am I going to do what God's word calls me to do and seek reconciliation? Trusting God is doing what he requires and trusting him no matter what happens, even if it's unpleasant. There was another leader of Israel who faced a lot of murmuring and unrest among his people, and his name was Moses. How did Moses deal with the people's unrest and even flat-out rebellion? Well, he was always going to the Lord. 
He was always trusting in the Lord and praying, and even praying for those who were, who were opposing him. That's what Saul should have done. He should have obeyed, and as things got more and more uncomfortable, as he grew more anxious, he should have gone to the Lord in prayer. That's what he should have done. Instead of trusting God, he was worried about the people. Look at what they're saying and doing. Uh-oh, I better do something. They're starting to scatter. What do I do? And he decided to take things into his own hands and act rashly. He feared man rather than God. And there were severe consequences. Look at verse 13. We said Samuel arrived, right? Here's what Samuel says. Verse 13, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God which, with which he commanded you. You disobeyed, in other words. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Wow, that's a major consequence. So he's saying, I would have continued with your descendants on the throne, but not anymore. Now I've already cho chosen someone who's going to replace you. Your line's not going to continue. You're not going to continue uh, your line as king. God had already chosen another man, and we know who that is, David, who's described as a man after God's own heart. That means it's someone who desires to obey God, someone who fears God more than man. The opposite of what Saul was. Saul's default was to depend on himself, take things into his own hands, and do whatever he wanted. He was more concerned with what others thought than God. So that's the first instance. Okay? That was his, his uh, disobedient sacrifice. But it gets worse. Incident number two, the bleating sheep. Next, we jump to chapter 15, Israel's battle in the Amalekites. Let me ask for a volunteer again. Somebody want to read 1 Samuel 15, the first three verses for us? Come on, I'll give you some candy. All right, here, I'll give you some candy ahead of time. Uh, no, I'll give you one. You read earlier. Have some nerds. First three verses, please, nice and loud. Now therefore hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek, and utterly destroy all that they have, and spare them not, but slay both men and women, infant and suckling, Okay, thank you. So because of what they had done in the past in opposing Israel, as Israel went, went through the wilderness, uh, judgment is coming on Amalek and the Amalekites. And God says, destroy everything. Destroy absolutely everything. But now read verse 7. And Saul defeated the Amalekites, good job, from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt, and he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, uh-oh, and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. Well, not exactly, because now we read what, what, what he, some of the people, maybe the soldiers. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and, well, they did, sorry, they did destroy the people, but look what they saved. Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep 
and of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So they held back and kept all the good stuff, and they destroyed just the garbage that nobody would have wanted anyway. And, and, they, and they spared the king. They, it sounds like they killed the people, but they spared the king, and they took a whole bunch of spoil when God said what? Destroy everything. Destroy absolutely everything. And they decided not to. Well, what happens? Samuel arrives and he finds out, right? Verse 13, Samuel came to Saul and Saul said, Blessed you be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Indeed you have not. <laughs> Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Because he did not do what he was to do. Saul, well, he quickly tries to excuse his disobedience. Look at verse 15. They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Oh, don't worry, Samuel. Well, you know, we kept all the good stuff, but we kept it just to give to the Lord. We kept it to, to sacrifice to the Lord. Samuel, does he, does he buy that? No, he doesn't buy that. Samuel will have none of it. Verse 16, Samuel said to Saul, Stop! I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said, Speak. Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission, and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed. He's still trying to say he obeyed. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I've brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. So he's, he's still excusing it, right? And he's, he's kind of pointing the finger at the people. Of course, who's king? Who do the people listen to? Him. And then second, it's like, oh, but again, we're giving it to you, God. It's for you. He repeats his lame excuse. Do you think he actually believes that? Does he think that's actually true, or is he just lying? Samuel declares God's judgment on him for this. Before, he said that Saul's kingdom would not continue. Now he says it's going to be taken from him. From not, so not only will he not have descendants who are going to be on the throne, he's going to lose the throne himself. 22, first, uh, first Samuel 15, 22. Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? So you're claiming all this stuff is going to be sacrificed to the Lord. That isn't what he wants. He wants you to obey. What good is a sacrifice coming from a disobedient heart? Right? That's fake. That's hypocrisy. You're doing it on the outside and on the inside. You're disobeying. You don't care what God says. So to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen is better than the fat of rams. That's what he says, 1 Samuel 15, 22. And then in 23, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Finally, Saul fesses up, and we realize that he, he knows exactly what happened, and he finally admits it. He was, he was telling a story, because look, verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. And then he says, why? Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. There it is. 
He feared the people, and he obeyed their voice, what they wanted. That's what happened. It wasn't because he thought it was okay to give this stuff to, to sacrifice to the Lord. He knew, but he decided to try, obey the people instead. Fear of man. He feared the people, not God. Maybe they asked for it, and he and he didn't. And he, you know, he wanted to please them, or maybe they just started taking it, and he didn't want to punish them for it. But again, he's the king. He's the leader. He's the one that goes and gives them instruction before the battle. Did he not tell them everything is to be destroyed? And if they weren't listening, is it not his job to do what you do when people disobey the king? But he wanted to please the people, not God. God had commanded him to do something. The people wanted him to do something else. And who did he go with? The people. Because that was King Saul. Have you ever been in that kind of situation? I'm sure you have. I'm sure we all have. You know God says to do this. But your friends want you to do that instead. You could call it peer pressure. But what it is, is it's pressure to obey men rather than God. We mentioned earlier the scenario, maybe you and your friends are together somewhere. They want to do something you know you shouldn't do. Are you going to do it for their approval? Or are you going to obey God no matter what happens because it's right? I know I shouldn't go over here and throw these rocks at those cars that are passing below. But my friends want to do it. And they say it'll be fun. Yeah. I know we shouldn't be watching this video, but my friends want to, and I don't want to rock the boat. I know I shouldn't be ridiculing that person, but my friends laugh, and they think it's funny, so I'm just going to play along. The Proverbs warn against this kind of thing. Proverbs 1.10, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Do not be enticed by people to disobey God, not even friends or those who claim to be friends. Saul continued to be enticed by the people's opinions, and his fall was already in motion. We've got one more scenario. So two of them, the disobedient sacrifice, the bleating of the sheep, and then the third one. I call it the green-eyed monster. You guys know what a green-eyed monster is? It's an expression for something. Jealousy or envy, yeah. All right, because of Saul's disobedience, God has Samuel anoint David to be the next king. And the Lord removes the Holy Spirit from Saul as Saul is no longer going to be serving him as king. And not only does he remove the Holy Spirit from Saul, then he sends an evil spirit to torment him as part of his judgment and as to bring about his destruction. Saul and Israel are facing the Philistines again. And you know this story when you get to chapter 17. David and Goliath, it's usually called, right? The Philistines have Goliath, this giant soldier. Instead of fighting with his troops, the leader, the king, Saul, the biggest, the tallest, remember? The biggest, the tallest, the best-looking man in the kingdom. He's cowering with his troops as Goliath mocks them. And David, with the spirit upon him, was zealous for the Lord, and he steps up and he defeats Goliath. You know the story well. What we actually want to look at is right after that. Right after the well-known story. 1 Samuel 18, verse 6. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, that's Goliath, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. 
Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Verse 8, and Saul was very angry. And the saying displeased him. They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And saw I, David, from that day on. He should have been happy that day that they had won the battle, that David had defeated this giant that no one dared to face, but instead he was overcome with jealousy. He was concerned about what the people said, about whom they sang for, and about their approval. And it drove him crazy that David was being celebrated more than him. Never mind the reality that no one, including Saul, would go face Goliath. And David's the one who went and slayed the giant, right? David did it. But no, Saul wanted the approval. It's kind of like if you were on a basketball team and you played a bad game, but your teammate stepped up and played a great game, basically winning the game for your team. But then as everybody's celebrating the victory, you sit there moping and jealous because everybody's praising your teammate instead of you. Because you want that praise. And they're actually still praising you, but just not quite as much. Right? They were attributing Saul to Saul thousands, but to David ten thousands. They were still praising Saul, but it wasn't enough. He wanted the most praise. That would be like if we did that on a basketball team. If you seek the approval of man, then you're going to be jealous when others receive that approval instead of you. Or more than you. Because approval has become an idol for you, your heart will act sinfully to compete for it. And in Saul's case, this completed his ruin. In his jealousy, he tried to destroy the one whom God was now with, David but instead he ended up being destroyed. He goes about tormented by the demon trying to kill David, and it's kind of poetic if you think about it. The one who never cared enough about God's approval and God's help and God's word when he had access to it, now wants to kill the one who has God's approval and God's help. In what will be his final battle, Saul is about to lead Israel against the Philistines once again. We jump ahead now to 1 Samuel 28, verse 6. And when Saul inquired of the Lord. Oh, now he wants to inquire of the Lord. Interesting. When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dream or by Urim or by prophets. The one who rarely bothered to inquire of the Lord, when he suddenly can't inquire of the Lord, he wants to. Again, it's kind of poetic. And so he breaks the laws against consulting mediums, and he manages to contact the spirit of Samuel, and all that does is leaves him terrified and weak. And then he comes to his end in the battle. Chapter 31, verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. He didn't want to kill the king. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. 
And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men on the same day together. That's the sad story of Saul. A quick promising rise, a tragic fall. We've learned this morning that he fell because he loved the approval of men more than the approval of God. And we saw that in three events. The disobedient sacrifice that he did, the bleating of the sheep when he took spoil from the Amalekites, and then the green-eyed monster of his jealousy against David. The Proverbs warn, in Proverbs 29-25, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Can anybody tell me what a snare is? What's a snare? Yeah. It's a trap. Yeah, there's different, a few different kinds, but it's a trap for an animal, right? A snare is a trap. A snare is a trap used to catch animals. And it says here, the fear of man lays a snare. It's a trap. The fear of man is a trap for you, trying to catch you. When we fear people more than God, it's like being an animal caught in a snare, caught in a trap. We're enslaving ourselves to the desires of others. We want to look good on the outside like Saul did in order to please people. But it's a game. It's a lie. We have to constantly keep up appearances, constantly act like we think people want us to act, because we're always worried that they might find out what we're really like. I try to act like a good Christian who has no struggles in his life whatsoever because I'm afraid if I'm honest, people might think poorly of me. I cheat to get good grades, but I'm always afraid that someone will find out that I'm really not that smart. But I'm trying to keep those appearances up. There is no peace. You're always worried about trying to please people. You're always worried about what they think. But if you fear God, whose approval is the only one that matters, then you can rest from anxiety. You can stand firmly and confidently, peacefully, knowing that you're doing what God wants you to do. And it doesn't matter who approves or who doesn't approve of it, because it's according to God, and he's the only one that matters. So we must fear God, not man. That's the lesson we learn from King Saul. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that we do have your word, Lord, that you have revealed yourself to us, that we do know your will, that we can't claim that we don't know what you want us to do, that if we are in, in difficult situations where we're not sure, we can go to others who can help us, or we can go to your word and find out. And so, Lord, we can always find uh, what your will is. We ask that you would help us, Lord, to be, be looking at what you want and be concerned with that. Uh, not what other people want, not what other people think, Lord. Help us to be just standing on your word. Uh, whatever happens, give us that strength, give us that boldness, Lord. But we know, Lord, that that strength and that boldness comes only if we know you. To fear the Lord, we need to know you, Lord. Um, and then we, would have, we have the ability through the Spirit in us to follow you. But otherwise, we're going to fear man more. So, Lord, we pray that if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, uh, that you would open their eyes to the truth, Lord, that they would become followers of Christ first, so that they would love you and fear you and not man. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.
it is worth mentioning one one more thing before I before I close. Um, if if you look at Saul, one of the interesting things, one of the arguments of why I don't believe he's saved, besides all the things he did and, the, and never a lack of repentance, if you if you go back to First Samuel, and when he got caught um, doing this doing the the second time with the bleeding of the sheep in First Samuel fifteen. At the end, he's, he's freaking out because Samuel is saying, the kingdom's going to be taken from you. But then he goes and he asks him to pray for him. He, said, he says, please, please go back with me and, and pray with me. And then he says to go and, and ask your God. That's what he says to him. He says, your God. He doesn't say, my God. Our God, he calls him Samuel's God. And that kind of speaks for itself. Uh, who of us would talk like that, right? If, if we're, we're followers of Christ, we're not going to say, it's your God. So, so that, that's really, if you get to the root of it, he didn't know the Lord, he didn't love the Lord. So he didn't fear the Lord. That simple. So it starts with knowing and loving the Lord. We have to be believers. Um, and then we'll fear the Lord and not man. All right. <clears throat>